0: Zechariah, we're going to be looking at the first six verses of chapter 13 this morning. To gain the context, would you go back with me to chapter 12, verse 10? I'll start reading there and read through verse 6 of chapter 13. And if you're having trouble finding Zechariah, find the Gospels Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and turn left. Zechariah is the 38th book of the Old Testament, which means it's right before the end of the Old Testament. And chapter 13 is the next to last chapter in that book. So Matthew and then backwards about four or five pages. Chapter 12, verse 10. God speaking. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication... So that they will look on me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. And in that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning of Hedadrimmon in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves. The family of the Shimeites by itself and their wives by themselves. All the families that remain. Every family by itself. And their wives by themselves. In that day, a fountain will be opened. For the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land and they will no longer be remembered. I will also remove the prophets and the unclean spirit from the land. And if anyone still prophesies, then his father and mother who gave birth to him will say to him, You shall not live, for you have spoken falsely in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who gave birth to him will pierce him through when he prophesies. Also, it will come about in that day that when the prophets, that the prophets will each be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. And they will not put on a hairy robe in order to deceive. But he will say, I am not a prophet. I'm a tiller of the ground. For a man sold me as a slave in my youth. And one will say to him, what are these wounds between your arms? And then he will say, these, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Would you bow with me? Father, we've just sung it not only of the gloriousness of the lifting up of Christ our Savior and the atoning blood which flowed from His hands and feet, but we have sung as well of His coming again, this glorious King and all those who have been ransomed and redeemed by Him, He will bring home. And that of which we have just sung is anticipated in that which we have just read. On a glorious day when Jesus Christ, the Messiah and King, will rule on His throne and redeem His people Israel. And they will worship Him alone. All through Israel's history, She has had a propensity, as it is with all men, to wander away from you, but not that day. In that day, she will be sure and fixed in her devotion to her King. Might that reality give us hope, encouragement, strength, fortitude to live in a world that is opposed to us, And might we likewise anticipate that day of the coming and ruling King, Jesus Christ, our Messiah, the Lord of the earth. In his name we pray. Amen. A few years ago, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology Invention Index, that's a mouthful, isn't it? Conducted a poll asking what five inventions Americans believed they could not live without. The answers in reverse order, some of which may not surprise you, are the microwave. Number four, the cell phone. Number three, the personal computer. Number two, the automobile. And number one, I would take guesses, but I don't think you'd ever get it. The toothbrush. I'm grateful that some of you have used that this morning. That's helpful. What do you need? As you think about your life, your circumstances, the world in which we live, what do you need today? Food. You need food. You need air to breathe. You need air conditioning. That's a, a more specific category of uh, you need uh, shelter. But you need air conditioning. You need clothing. You need relationships. You need opportunities to love and serve. You need church and worship. And you need redemption. Oh, friend, you need redemption. Our greatest need, says one theologian, quote, is a holy life transformed and radiant in the glory of God. What you and I need above all else and beyond all else is the redemptive work of Jesus Christ to liberate us from sin. That is true of us and it was and is true of the nation of Israel as well. We need redemption She needs redemption. And God has promised and has a plan to redeem Israel as a nation. In Zechariah chapter 12, a few weeks ago now, we saw that God would save the entire nation of Israel physically. He would preserve the nation in her land and bring the nation back to the land and settle her there. That's in the first nine verses of chapter 12. And then after that, we saw that God would not only preserve the nation physically, but that He would preserve the nation spiritually as well. That's chapter 12, verses 10 through 14. And in that section, what we saw is that the nation will come to God in repentance and brokenness. That's that humility that we read of in verse verse 10 of chapter 12 a few moments ago. They will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn. They will look at Christ and realize the depth of their sin in crucifying Him and rejecting Him. And they will be grief-stricken and mourn and lament and come to Him in repentance and faith. And now, because of that, He will save them by grace, through faith, in that Christ whom they had formerly rejected. That's chapter 12. God saves them spiritually. Now in chapter 13, what we find is that God is exposing more specifics about how he will save spiritually. What, what will he do in the nation of Israel to save them? And what will that look like in that day? And As we look at these first six verses of chapter 13, what we will find is this simple truth. God will save Israel by forgiving and cleansing the nation. He will forgive. He will wash away. He will wipe out. He will obliterate. He will vanquish every sin and everything that holds them unclean, that prevents them from appropriate worship, He will wipe away and cleanse that as well. Again, this is all conditioned because in that day, the entire nation will repent. That's chapter 12, verse 10. And thus, God will respond with two specific acts of salvation. He will do two things in saving them. He will grant them a gift and He will remove a difficulty. So, two specific acts in forgiving and cleansing them. The granting of a gift and the removing of a trouble. And that's what we're going to see unpacked in these verses. First of all, let us see in verse 1 what God will give to his repentant people. And as we come to verse 1... Notice the initial words of that verse, in that day. Now, we unpacked this a few weeks ago. I don't want to take a whole lot of time to do that again, except to acknowledge that when he says in that day, he's talking about the day of the Lord, the Lord's day. That's not Sunday, but that's talking about the future time at the end of time. And specifically, he's talking about the millennial kingdom. And so in chapter 12, he's focused particularly in the beginning part of that chapter about the battle of Armageddon and the nation coming back into the land. In chapter 14, that we're going to see in a couple of weeks, we're going to see the coming of Christ as king and ruling on his throne, on the Davidic throne in Jerusalem. And in this chapter, he's unfolding in that day what the millennial blessings will be for the nation of Israel spiritually. What will he do for them spiritually and he will do two primary things first of all he will give forgiveness he will give forgiveness in that day again the millennial kingdom looking towards that future time at the end of the age right before eternity begins the thousand years of christ's reign in that day he says a fountain will be opened idea of fountain isn't hugely prevalent in the Old Testament. It is used a number of times in the Old Testament. And often it is used, when it is used, as, as a picture of a source of spiritual life. For instance, just one illustration. Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 13 and 14. Oh Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame... Those who turn away on the earth will be written down because they have forsaken the fountain of living water, even the Lord. So the fountain is a picture of living water. It is a picture of life. It is a picture of salvation that comes from God, from Yahweh alone. And here... People who are looking for the fountain of eternal life have rejected the only one who genuinely is the fountain, but in that day, the fountain which is already available will be opened up and all Israel that has humbled itself will come and drink and have eternal life. Again, notice that he doesn't say the fountain will be built, but he says the fountain will be opened. So the fountain is already existent. But in the millennial kingdom, that fount will be opened. The water of life will flow through that fountain and dispense its life to all who partake of it. It's notable as well that he uses the imagery here of a fountain and not a well. Because a well you go to and you've got to drop a bucket into and you've got to lift that bucket up and you are getting water from it intermittently. That might picture the sacrifices that were made in the tabernacle in the Old Testament. So periodically they would go and they would receive life or hope from those periodic sacrifices. But here he says it's a fountain. And the fountain is ever flowing, ever bubbling, ever dispensing its life, unceasingly giving access to it. And what is the fountain? Well, it's kind of obvious, isn't it? The fountain is Jesus Christ. So he is anticipating the Messiah and the Messiah's work and the Messiah's reign And while Jesus doesn't use this exact imagery, he does draw on it. For instance, in John chapter 4, Jesus speaking to the Samaritan woman says, everyone who drinks of this water, the water at the well at which they were standing, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Drink of me, and you will have water that flows from you into eternal life perpetually. The fountain, Christ, will be opened. And what does that fountain do? What's the function of that fountain? Notice verse 1. The fountain will be opened, end of the verse, for, that's the purpose clause, for sin and for impurity. The fountain washes the Israelites clean from all sin and from all defilement, from everything that makes them unclean. That word sin is a very common word in the Old Testament. It's used something on the order of 600 times. It's the word that you're familiar with. It means something like it is a missing of the mark. And that word missing of the mark seems to have this idea of, well, there's that target out there and I'm shooting towards that target and I just get a little off-center. And, and that's true. We miss the mark. We miss the standard. We're, we're off-center We don't hit it, but that's only part of the picture. Missing God's standard of righteousness, according to this definition of sin, isn't accidental. The one who misses the mark has had an active role in missing the mark. In other words, he doesn't want the target. He doesn't want to hit what God has said at the standard. He looks at the standard and says, not on my watch. And he orients himself in another direction and says, I'm going that way. So it's not just a missing of the mark, but it is, in so many words, an act of rebellion and an act of rejection of God. They don't want God. They don't want his standard. They don't want his righteousness. And God says, in that day, He will wash them of their rebellion. They have hated Him. They have opposed Him. They have intentionally gone away from Him. And they, have, they will be washed from that. Not only does He wash them of sin, but He also washes them of impurity. And That word impurity doesn't refer to moral failure like the word sin does, but it it refers to a ritual uncleanness. So, in other words, it's it's not the sin itself, but it's the consequences of sin. It's, it's the consequences of what happens when sin enters a fallen wor- or enters a world and makes the world fallen. And it's the things that that prevent one from coming through ritual worship and cleansing to make one to stand right before God. In their worship. So both morally sin and ceremonially in their impurity, these people have no standing before the Lord until they humble themselves. And then he applies the fountain of water that comes through Christ and from Christ and cleanses them. They're washed of the guilt of their rebellious sin it is so very similar to what we've already seen in this book, chapter 3, about the high priest Joshua. And it says in verse 3, Now Joshua, the high priest, was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. And he spoke and he said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. And then again he said to him, See, I have taken your iniquity away from you. And I will clothe you with festal robes. So not only does God remove the sin, but He imputes the righteousness of Christ. And that's going to happen in that day. For every individual of Israel, I, I could say every, every, every individual of Israel who repents, but the reality is every individual will repent. And the entire nation, not just a few isolated believers here or there, but the entire nation will be saved and washed clean by the blood of Christ. Washed clean and renewed spiritually and made able to worship and serve the Lord in honor. When you read this verse, you can't help but think about William Cooper's hymn, William Cooper, the great friend of John Newton. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinner's plunged beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. That's true for you and me today and it will be completely true for the nation of Israel in that day when Jesus comes to set up His throne. And that's the forgiveness that has come and that's the forgiveness that will come and it will come to the nation as well. Notice this also about what God will give to His repentant people. He'll give forgiveness and then also, he will give forgiveness to all Israel. Notice the middle of the verse. I jumped over it intentionally. He will open the fountain for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. That middle phrase denotes the extent of forgiveness. It notes to whom the forgiveness will go. And we've noted previously that the word the phrase, the house of David, is a reference to all the kingly rulers of, of Judah. So it particularly focuses on the Davidic line and that will culminate and terminate on the Messiah. Sometimes a term, it, it refers to the Messiah himself. Very often it refers just to that Davidic line that will lead to him. And sometimes it refers to all of the political rulers of Judah. So it's just those who are in Judah who are sovereign over the land, not ultimately, but they're kings over the land, providing rulership and leadership over Israel. I think that's what the reference is here. And not just the rulers, though, but also that fountain will be available for all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, every resident of Jerusalem. From the greatest ruler in Judah to the most menial of inhabitants of Jerusalem, they all have access to that fountain and they will all be washed by it. In other words, God will redeem and spiritually restore all Israel because all Israel will repent. There's a good day coming. And it's not just for Israel, though. I mean, that's the focus of this chapter, isn't it? Israel will repent. Israel will be forgiven. Israel will be restored. But we do well to remember that forgiveness is not just for Israel. Forgiveness is available to the Gentiles as well. In fact, we've seen that repeatedly throughout this book. Chapter 8, verse 20, Thus says the Lord of hosts, It will be that peoples, the nations, the Gentiles will come Even the inhabitants of many cities, that is, cities outside of Jerusalem, outside of Judah, outside of Israel. And the inhabitants of one will go to another saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I will go also. If you go, I'll go. Let's find the Lord of hosts, the one who is sovereign, the one who gives salvation to Israel. Let's go and find that same salvation, verse 22 of chapter 8. So many peoples and mighty nations will come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem to entreat the favor of the Lord. They're, they're seeking the grace of God. And thus says the Lord of hosts in those days, ten men from all the nations will grasp the garment of a Jew saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. So not just will Israel be saved, but the Gentiles will also be saved and enfolded into this plan. Oh, brothers and sisters, this is a reminder that no one is beyond the forgiveness that is available from God. Every sin, any sin, can be cleansed by the fountain of Christ's blood. Whatever you've done, It can be washed. And it can be cleaned. There is no sin that is more powerful than the power of Christ's death and resurrection. Don't presume that what you have done is greater than Christ. It isn't. And that is our hope. It's our hope for the future for Israel and what God will do to save Israel. And it's our hope today That God will forgive us today. And my friend, if you are here this morning and you have not trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you may be saying, Terry, you don't know what I've done. You don't know how horrific it is. You don't know how terrible it was. You don't know how rebellious it was. That's true, I don't. But I do know that God forgives everything you just have to repent you have to turn away from the sin and say I don't want that and you have to turn in faith to Christ and say I do want him I don't want to live this way I do want to live this way and my friend this verse is an encouragement not just for Israel in the future it is massively that and that's the primary meaning of this text but it is also a hope for us today that as he will do at the end, he will do today. He will wash, he will cleanse, he will restore. That's God's gift to his repentant people. Secondly, I want you to notice as well what God will remove from his repentant people. God will forgive the the repentant Israelites. That's his positive gift, if you will. And now he's going to expand on that a little bit and give us some other aspects of what God does in saving Israel. Not just will he give a gift, but, but he will negatively remove something from them. So salvation is a gift of grace, the giving of a benefit, but salvation is also the removal of a burden. And these verses, verses 2 through 6, explain what is removed from us. And I want you to notice as well, in verse 1, he's talking about individuals, right? So all of those who are of the house of David, every citizen of Jerusalem, those are individuals. That's individual salvation. Now, in verses 2 through 6, he's talking about corporate salvation and the, na- and the salvation of the nation as an entity, Verse 1 also relates to the internal problem of sin. My my own sin, my heart, my rebellion. And verses 2 through 6 focus on the removal of that which is outside of us, which entices us to sin. So just what is it that God will remove from the nation? And what external realities of sin will be removed? Notice this, beginning of verse 2. He will remove idolatry. Again, verse 2 starts similar to verse 1, focusing on the reality that this this is what's coming in the millennial kingdom. It will come about in that day, in the Lord's day, in the day of the millennial kingdom, declares the Lord of hosts that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land. In that day, the Lord of hosts, the one who is king over all of the armies, the armies in heaven, the armies on earth, the armies that are under the earth, every kingdom, every authority, every army, the one who is sovereign over that, that one is speaking. The one speaks who no one can thwart, who no one can resist, who no one can stand against. And what he says is, I will cut off the names of the idols. That word cut off means, in that that particular form, something like to exterminate. It refers to a total eradication. Interestingly, it is the same word that is used repeatedly through the Old Testament for God making a covenant. When God makes a covenant, the Old Testament says he cuts it. So God establishes by cutting a covenant with Israel. And that cut covenant, Israel broke repeatedly, almost from day one, all the way through the Old Testament. And on that day, God will cut that which has enticed the nation away for millennia and preserve them and save them. What does he cut off? What does he exterminate? He exterminates the names of the idols, not just the idols themselves, but he exterminates the names of them. And so if, if something was named, one had authority in that name. If someone had control of the name, they had control over that item. And so to cut the name is to cut the power, to cut the authority, to cut the dominance And he says, I will eradicate all of the authority and the power of the idols that are in Israel. The idols will be rendered impotent by the omnipotent God. And notice that this is not what the people do. This is not what Israel does. Notice that he says, I will cut off. This is God's action. This is the Lord of hosts who will act. And he alone will eradicate idolatry from the nation. It gets better. He doesn't just eradicate idolatry and its power. But notice the next phrase. And they, the names of the idols, will no longer be remembered. And what he means by that is the desire for idolatry. Will be removed. And that's significant because the power of an idol is not its physical form, but that the desire that it entices sinners away from God with. An idol is not just a created thing. An idol is not just a totem pole or an iPhone. An idol is what we want more than when we want God. Our idolatrous desires express our lack of delight in God and our distrust of God. So Joe Rigney has said, idolatry isn't loving something too much. It's loving something in place of God. It's a desire for anything that is not God And God's promise in this verse is that in that day, even its memory will be removed. So he'll cut the power, he'll remove the idol, and there won't even be a memory of it. They don't remember the idols, and if they don't remember the idols, they don't think about the idols. And if they don't think about the idols, they don't desire the idols. It's a good day coming, friend. Because I don't know about you, but I've been tempted by idols today. Haven't you? Something that my heart says, oh, Terry, that will satisfy. That will give longing and that will fulfill the longing of your soul, your heart. I mean, I don't want to go to meddling or anything, but I had three cups of coffee today instead of two. Part of it was desperation. Part of it was longing. It'll satisfy me. Again, I don't want to get to meddling with your coffee habits or other things. But it's the desire that says, do you want this? or do you want the lord of hosts there's a glorious day coming when that battle in your heart is going to be gone not a good day we are bombarded we are bombarded with idolatrous messages and idolatrous internal desires and one day soon lord of hosts will eradicate every idol and every desire for idols. And it gets even better. Watch this. He will remove idolatrous prophets. You know what the idolatrous prophets are, aren't you? They're the commercials that say, buy this car. That'll satisfy you. Drink this drink. Go on this vacation. Buy this. Fill in the blank. There are all kinds of prophets that say this will lead you to satisfaction in a way that the Lord won't. And notice what he says towards the end of the verse. And I will also, with the cutting off of the idols, also remove the prophets. Which prophets? The ones advocating for the idols. Now you think about the Old Testament And you remember that the prophets were given by by God to the people so that they would hear the word of the Lord given through the Spirit of the Lord. So the role of the prophet is to say, thus says the Lord. But in Israel, back in that day and this day and until that future day, are other prophets that saying, oh, not that, this. And they hold out something else instead of God. Those prophets speak in a way that reveal the desires of not the spirit of God, but another spirit. And like the idols, those prophets will be taken away and put away permanently. Their message will cease. And verses three to six, expose for us the thoroughness of God's removal of the false prophets. So what will happen in that day in the millennial kingdom if a false prophet would arise? Well, how would the people respond if a false prophet shows up and starts saying, follow this idol? And if anyone, hypothetically, if anyone still prophesies in that day for the idol, then his father and mother who gave birth to him will say to him, you will not live. Why? Because you have spoken falsely in the name of the Lord. You've you've claimed God and you're taking people away. You must be put to death. And his father and mother who gave birth to him. Notice that phrase appears twice to emphasize the close familial affection and attachment. The father and mother who gave birth to him will pierce him through when he prophesied. That's pretty radical. And it's exactly what the law calls for. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 20. The prophet who speaks the word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of the other gods, that prophet shall die. Put him to death. And people will so love the forgiveness of God and the redemption that comes from the living waters of that fountain that they would sooner put to death their own child than embrace a lie that would move them away from Christ. There's a, there's a small inkling there of how it is that we will be satisfied in heaven when loved ones that we have on earth are not there with us and that we know are receiving the wrath of God. And it is because there is this deep affection and commitment to and allegiance to the Lord and His Word that will overwhelm all other relationships. Israel's concern in that day will be more for truth and the reputation of God than even familial relationships. Notice also how far... This allegiance to God will go, verse 4, every false prophet will be ashamed in that day that the prophets, it will come about in that day that the prophets will each be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. That word ashamed, as we think about it, typically means an internal sense of shame, right? So if Terry says, I'm ashamed, that means I feel this inner conviction, this inner wrong, this this condemnation of conscience. And that's not what this word means. It's not an internal shame. It's an external shame. In other words, the nation of Israel will shame the one who speaks falsely such that the one who is tempted to speak falsely will not even put on a hairy robe in order to deceive. The hairy robe was the... The, the garment of the prophet, right? So the prophet wears these hairy robes, think John the Baptist. And in that day, they understand that if I say something wrong, I'm going to be shamed, I'm going to be, I'm going to be obliterated. And so they won't even put on the robe, they won't, they won't even begin to say anything. And even more, verse 5, they'll even disavow that they're prophets. He will say, I'm not a prophet, they're going to run away right now Prophets are bold, and prophets for idols are bold, and they're in your face, and they're saying, "Go this way! Don't go to Jesus. Jesus can't give you that." And in that day, they'll be doing the opposite because they understand that the culture of faith is dominant, and so they run. They're no longer attempting to deceive. They're saying, "I'm not a prophet." Oh, not me. I'm not a prophet of, of idolatry. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a tiller of the ground. I was sold into slavery. I didn't have time to do anything. I'm just this poor slave that's just been working in the field. Not me, not me. And they'll look at him, verse 6, and they'll say to him, what are those wounds between your arms? And probably alluding there to ascetic practices, you know, flagellating their backs in order to appease the gods. Remember the false prophets of Baal before Elijah in 1 Kings? It's probably something like that. They look at the they look at the wounds on the back from those ascetic practices. They what is that? Oh, that. Oh, that that's, that's just those those things that I received when I was wounded in the house of my friends. That word friends is actually my loved ones, and we're not really sure what the excuse is going to be. It's going to, it could be something like. Well that was, my buddies and I just got into this fight and, and we really didn't mean it but I got this injury from that fight. Or maybe it's my parents were a little bit too emphatic in their discipline of me when I was a child and that's where it came from. The, the point simply is, whatever the interpretation is, the point simply is they're gonna come up with these weak and flimsy excuses and nobody's gonna believe them. That's not where that came from, it came from idolatry. The anticipation in these verses is so joyous for Israel. Those who have hidden the truth, deceived Israel, and led the people away from God will be exposed and removed. No more false teachers. The hearts of the people will be inclined to God and there will be no false representatives of God to distract them. Every resource will be a trustworthy resource resource. Always pointing Israel to God. And it gets even better than that. He will remove the source of idolatry. And I will also remove, end of verse 2, the prophets and the unclean spirit from the land. This is the only place in the Old Testament where that phrase, unclean spirit, is used. But it was used multiple times in the Old te- in the Gospels. And the reference, obviously, is to demonic influence and satanic influence. And the one who is behind every false teaching, every false prophecy, every idol will be tied up and removed. And he laid hold of the dragon, Revelation 20 verse 2, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and he shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. And after these things, he must be released for a short time. During that kingdom, Satan is bound and all his ideas. No idols, no desire, no false teachers, no false king of the idols. (laughs) It's a great day coming. It's a great day coming. Hard to imagine, isn't it? But it's coming soon. This promise is for the nation of Israel, but we also find great encouragement in it. What is our hope as we live in this broken world? And how should we think about these promises? Our hope now and in the future, very quickly, four items, four hopes. Only God can forgive And God has made forgiveness available to all people. There is nothing that cannot and will not be forgiven by God. Though, as with Israel, the condition is repentance. You have to repent. To be forgiven, you must repent. But when you repent, He will forgive all. He doesn't hold anything against you anymore. Secondly, second hope, God has cleansed us from all sin and all unrighteousness. What is pictured here is a hint. What is pictured in Zechariah 13 is a hint at the promise that Ezekiel gives us in Ezekiel 36. And the promise of the new covenant. For I will take you from the nations, thirty six twenty four and I will gather you from all the lands and I will bring you into your land. That's Zechariah 12, right? The restoration of the nation to the land physically. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. That's 13.1 in Zechariah and the cleansing of sin. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and all of your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart, new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from you and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Then you will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers so you will be my people and I will be your God. The nation isn't yet living in the land and the people are not yet fully obedient. But that process has begun. The blood has been shed. Forgiveness has been granted to those who have trusted in Christ. The spirit has been given. The new covenant has been initiated, though it waits for its ultimate fulfillment. But brothers and sisters, it's coming. And the sin that troubles us and the idolatry that troubles us will one day fully be removed. Which leads us to the next hope that God will remove every sin and every sinful desire. And then finally, God will save His people, both Israel and those who are grafted into Israel. Which means that whatever the headlines look like today, that's not the final word. Zechariah 13 is the final word. That Christ and His blood will wash away, cleanse, and restore His people to Himself. The destiny of Israel is safe, and the destiny of all those who trust in Christ is safe. So, let's circle back to where we started. What do you need? You don't need a toothbrush. You need a Redeemer. And you have a Redeemer. We have everything we need in Christ. And so does Israel. And one day soon, He will come and He will complete His salvation for His people. And Israel will be safe. And we in Christ will be safe. Our Father, we thank You for the reminders. Of what is coming in the future. What a glorious day that will be. Thank you that even as we have looked this morning forward to what is coming in Christ. We are thankful as well that we can look backward to Christ as well. And look backward to his first advent. And what he has accomplished for us on the cross. And how that has secured us and made us safe now and in the future. And so as we come to this table of remembrance this morning, it is fitting that we do so because our future hope is contingent on our past hope. And as we come to reflect on this past hope, would you give us eyes to see two things? Would you give us eyes to see our own sin that needs the washing of forgiveness and, and, and the, the, the cleansing that will put us in right fellowship with you? And then secondly, would you give us eyes to see the joy of Christ who makes available forgiveness from you for all things? And might this table be our satisfaction in you.